Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be continuing through the book of Acts. And again, to kind of set what's taking place here, the disciples had seen Jesus for a period of 40 days coming and and working among them, talking to them, staying with them for periods of time, enough time to actually eat with them and talking to them about the kingdom that was to come. And he gave them instructions that they were to wait in Jerusalem until they were to be empowered by the Holy Spirit that they would be witnesses. And so there is this excitement that is among them as they are gathering together and in unity and in praying and and waiting for this time to come. Waiting for this day that we're going to read about to come. And we talked about the excitement of that time and waiting. Jesus has promised you something. You guys remember Christmas when you know there's that gift under the tree. You see it. Well, tomorrow you get to open it. Well, that day is going to come. That excitement, that enthusiasm of when you get to finally get whatever it is that you're waiting for. That Christmas present or that marriage date when you finally get your wife, you know. Yes, you're mine now. There's that excitement waiting for that time. Well, there's that excitement, enthusiasm taking place. And as they are obedient and waiting, the Lord fulfills his promise. And let's read, starting on verse 1, and we're going to read through 13. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated And came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judah and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They have had too much wine. Well, here the day of Pentecost comes, the promise that Jesus had been giving to the disciples, not only right before the 40 days of appearing, but throughout his ministry he said, that this would happen. John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water, but one is coming after me whose shoes I'm unworthy to untie. He will baptize you with power and with fire. And that day is happening right here where they are empowered with the Holy Spirit. Now we talked about this a little bit Sunday and I'm not going to go in depth to all the things that we talked about Sunday. I don't want to be redundant, but we see that spirit and fire are very symbolic here. 
Spirit is the word pneuma. It's the same word that is used for wind. Jesus said in John chapter 3 that a person who is born of the Spirit is like the wind. You don't know where they're coming. You don't know where they're going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And those words are used interchangeably. Wind, Spirit. We know fire. God is a consuming fire. He appeared to Moses in a burning bush on Mount Sinai. Fire descended. The fire of the Lord descended on the mountain when God gave his commandments to the nation of Israel. And we see that's very symbolic because now God, the Holy Spirit, is descending upon his people and this is the new covenant that Jeremiah spoke about where now he is not writing on tablets of stone but he is writing and confirming that law upon our hearts the new covenant being established being birthed in his church and so as this is taking place they began speaking in tongues and I'm not going to go into the tongues again as I did Sunday morning but we see that they are speaking actually in dialects here. They're speaking in languages that all these people understand. And they heard this noise. And what did they hear? Well, most likely it was a combination of that rushing wind that came violently. That word violently is, is something that has to do with it was very noisy. It was something that caused a ruckus. And also they heard them all speaking in these different tongues. And so no doubt there was this sound. What was that? And then there's this commotion. Have you ever gone to a crowded place? Maybe it's a ball game. And you're sitting there watching a ball game and all of a sudden you hear a bunch of noise because, you know, it's a Raider game and a fight breaks out, you know, or whatever. It, it, something goes on and there's this ruckus that takes place and pretty soon you hear, hey, what's going on? And you see this group of people that are there and there's, you know, people shouting or whatever. Or maybe it's even just out at a park or something and some people are having a great time and all of a sudden you're hearing laughing and this jubilant noise coming and, and it causes your attention to go there because what's going on over there? What's What's that noise? You start paying attention because something is happening. The decibel level has just increased in this area and all of a sudden they hear this noise and then they're, what? man, there's a lot of noise going over there and imagine all these different languages being spoken at one time. That would cause a ruckus. That would cause your attention. What's going on? hearing all these different languages. And it's interesting because it says they began speaking in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This isn't something they just mustered up on their own. This is something that God, the Holy Spirit, enabled them to do. And it is the work of the Spirit, not our own flesh, that we need. We need to be enabled by God, not just our own work. And as they were enabled by God, they began speaking, and what they began speaking, well, before we get there, it's interesting because they said, are not all these Galileans? And it's interesting they said that because we see that throughout the scripture a few times. Remember Peter when he denied the Lord. They said, surely you're one of his disciples, for you're from Galilee as well. And early in Jesus' ministry, in John chapter 7, they say, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Does any, you know, they were wondering, search the scriptures, nothing comes from Galilee. And there's this kind of prejudice that's taking place with the Galileans. You guys may have 
experience prejudice in one way or another, if you're not, you know, highfalutin, if you're not the kind of person that commands attention, if you don't drive the right car, those kinds of things, you, you can see that there's a sense that people can look down on you just because of your status, your you know, economic status or maybe racial profiling or something like that where people have this attitude towards you because of whatever reason, this prejudice. Well, apparently Galilee has that kind of connotation, which I love, not that there's this prejudice, but I love that Jesus is identified. Even though he wasn't born in Galilee, he identifies with that because he came from Galilee. And I search the scriptures, I think it was from Galilee. They said the same thing about Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? And here, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the, the author of life is identified with those who are belittled, those who have this bad reputation. Doesn't that make you feel good? It makes me feel good. It's like, cool, I can fit in. I, I don't have to be pristine. I don't have to, you know, drink tea with my finger up. I, 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 I can be who I am. God identifies with me. God reached out to me, and as the Spirit enabled them, we see that God came upon them. And although they were Galileans or recognized as being people of this caliber, they were declaring the wondrous works of God. And that's something that's interesting because we see that that is one of the things that is attributed to the gift of tongues. That it is actually in John or 1 Corinthians 14, it says that he who speaks in an unknown tongue does not speak to men, but to God. And so we see throughout the scripture when someone is giving an utterance in tongue, it's not, say, a prophecy to men, but it's a praise and adoration, magnification to God. And that's what's taking place here. They were giving glory to God, giving glory about the resurrection of Jesus, about who God is, his mercy. Who knows? But they were all hearing the wondrous works of God. And what a, a great testimony that is to see that they are giving praise to God, these Galileans, and they were amazed and perplexed, and they give this list of all these these people, and this is kind of like a, a bird's-eye view of Rome, really. It's showing all these different regions, and again, Pentecost was one of the feasts. We just had the Passover, and, and so this is a time when a lot of people are in that area. People from all over Rome who were devout Jews, it says there. People who were following the Jewish traditions and those who were converted to Judaism. They were here because it was part of the feasts. And they were going to be dispersing. This is kind of the end of their time of festivals, which is one of the reasons Jesus probably told them, stay in Jerusalem. Don't leave just yet. Wait until this happens. And this is important to realize because it's going to take it's going to play an important part later on in the chapter. We're going to see that all these people hanging out here, they ended up staying a little bit longer than usual because of what was happening. And they had this response in verse 12, amazed and perplexed. I love that because that so describes God so many times. He amazes me and he perplexes me. You guys ever experienced that? It's like, oh God, you're amazing. And then something happens in your life and you're just perplexed. Why, God? Why would this happen? 
I'm perplexed. And I love that's a kind of a nice way of saying, you know, I don't get it. But they were amazed and perplexed. Something was going on, and it caused two responses. And we'll see that usually this is the case. One response is people ask, what does this mean? They wanted to know more about it. The other response is, ah, these guys are drunk. Ridicule. And you'll find that your faith being expressed is going to cause one of these two responses. Some people are going to say, what does this mean? I, I would like to know more about it. And some people are going to say, ah, that's, you're crazy. You're drunk. You're off your rocker. You, you don't know what you're talking about. They'll belittle it. And that's usually the case. And it's important to see these distinctions because Jesus said, don't cast your pearl before the swine. There are people who are genuinely interested and there are people who you can throw pearls out and it's going to be a waste of time. People who don't care, who aren't interested, who only want to mock. We cannot change anybody's mind. That is the work of God changing their lives. Remember, as we were going through Philippians, we talked about this, or Colossians, we talked about this, that we cannot change our heart, but we can change our mind. And God will not change our mind, but if we change our mind, he will change our hearts. Yes, tracking with me? If we decide, I want to surrender, God says, bingo, I will change your life. But he will not force us to change our mind. We cannot force someone to change their mind or the way they think. We can introduce evidences of our faith, why we believe what we believe, but it is the work of the Spirit that must change the heart if that person is willing to change their mind. And so here we see two contrasts, those who want to know more, what does this mean? And those who are mocking and say, uh, these guys are drunk, they've had too much wine. And literally what that's speaking of, or sweet wine, it has to do with they have wine that isn't quite ready yet. And the idea is just that these guys, you know, they're low lives, they don't know what's going on. It's real mockery to them. And I love Peter's response because now Peter then stood up with the eleven, raised his voice <clears throat> and addressed the crowd. And that addressed the crowd, it, it's kind of he spoke, spoke forth. In other words, he was anointed to say. And that's exactly what's taking place is he is being anointed by the Spirit of God to make a proclamation. He's just been empowered. Remember, Jesus said, you will be empowered on high and you will be my witnesses. And he's now going to give testimony as he addresses the crowd. In verse 14 he says, He stood up, the eleven, raised his voice, addressed the crowd, Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now it's interesting because he addresses the, the mockers but the way he, he addresses it can be interpreted one of two ways. These men are not drunk as you suppose. In other words, they're not drunk like you're thinking. Or it could be that they're not drunk the way you're thinking. Remember in Ephesians chapter 5, 
Paul writes and says, do not be drunk, filled with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Do not be drunk with wine, but in a sense, be influenced by the Holy Spirit. And so in Ephesians, there's this equation of being intoxicated with strong wine and the intoxication of the Holy Spirit. You're either influenced by the alcohol or you're influenced by the Holy Spirit. And so they're not drunk like you're thinking. They're intoxicated with something else, with the Holy Spirit. It can be interpreted either way. They're not drunk like you're... Oh, no, they're not drunk. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're not drunk like you're thinking, but they are, again, influenced by the Holy Spirit. They are having an influence, but it's not with wine. It's with the Holy Spirit. Which brings to question our own lives. What is influencing us? You know, when you drink alcohol or use any kind of narcotic, what happens is that takes place and connects to your system and starts affecting how you behave. It starts having a, a control over you, have an influence, you become intoxicated with it. Whatever that might be, we can become intoxicated with food. You guys ever go into a place and go, oh man, what is that? And you just like, oh, I got a house and we're intoxicated. We can be intoxicated with a lot of things where they start having control of our lives. Whether it's some kind of alcohol, drugs, food, sex, things influence our lives and have control over us, intoxicate us, so to speak. Or we can be affected by the Spirit of God and the life of God. What are we going to yield ourselves to? It's a question that we have to ask ourselves because we do yield ourselves. We are influenced by something, either God or this world. What's influencing us? What's influencing our life? And he goes on and he says, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he's going to go on here in verse 17. It says, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great day and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We see that Peter, once again, as we saw in chapter 1, has command of the scriptures. He knows the word of God. He quotes from Joel here. And this quote from Joel is interesting because it has a, a twofold prophecy. It's being fulfilled right here at this time. But it's also, if you look on, it says in verse 20, it says, The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming and great day of the glorious day of the Lord. There's a fulfillment that hasn't yet taken place. So part of it was being fulfilled right there at Pentecost. Part of it's still waiting to be fulfilled which happens many times in prophecies. 
There's an immediate prophecy that we see taking place, and there's a future prophecy that's going to take place. But we see that Peter has command over the scriptures. Remember what they're going to say later on in the books of, book of Acts. They see and they marvel at these men because they're just fishermen, but they know that they've been with Jesus. How did they know? Boy, the, the scripture is just overflowing in this fisherman. What's going on there? I can remember when I started getting involved with Bible studies and I would go and I was just desiring to know what the scriptures taught and what they said and I would go to study after study and I would read my Bible and I would listen to tapes and I would just engulf myself with the scriptures. And then I would talk to someone and they'd say, how do you know so much? They would think I was like some studied person and it was just, I was hungry. I wanted to learn. I wasn't educated in school. The Holy Spirit was ministering to me and giving me a desire to look and to study these things. And I just started inclining my ear to Him. And pretty soon it became a part of my life. And then that started coming out of my life. Out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth will speak. And as I was putting those things within my heart, they started becoming a part of my conversation in my life. And three years with Jesus, Peter is now just overflowing with what's been put in him over the last three years. Walking with the Son of God, now what comes out? The Scripture. And it's great that he can say, this is that. He is able to identify what is taking place there with them at that present time with what the scriptures declare. What are we doing? We're gathering together. Assembling ourselves to gather. That's what the scriptures tell us to do in Hebrews. Why do you meet? Well, that's why. Making joyful songs unto the Lord. Well, that's what we are doing just a little while ago melodies within our hearts. This is that. What we're doing is connected to what God has said and, and revealed in Scripture. And then he gives a little list of these things that are going to happen as His Spirit pours out on all people. Your sons and daughter will prophesy. Young men will see visions. And old men will dream dreams. Now it's interesting because he says in the last days, which means that he considers that time of Pentecost the last days, but we're continuing in the last days. If you research and see the workings of the Spirit within the church, you will find that there's not a lot of evidence of the workings taking place real early on in the church, but the last century, it starts popping up all over the world. In other words, the early church, they had this explosion of the Spirit of God working, but as the church grew, even in the early centuries, there was not a lot of account given of the working of the spirits, people speaking in tongues, healings taking place, these kinds of things. But then in this last century, there is a lot of accounts of revival taking place, showing up with speaking in tongues, healings. In the early 1900s, there was the Azusa Street Revival. Welsh had their revival at the turn of the century also, where there is this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we see even in China, Africa, different places throughout the world in this last century, there is this kind of outpouring. 
outpouring of God's Spirit showing up in and demonstrated in the things that he lists here. Prophecy, seeing vision, dreaming dreams. Now that's a, that's a, a great gift to dream dreams. That, that gives right for some of you to even fall asleep here. It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm dreaming dreams. I'm, I'm exercising my gift right now. You know? It is a gift of the Holy Spirit to dream dreams. You know? And it's something that should be encouraged. Of course, my encouragement to those who dream dreams probably fell on deaf ears because they're asleep right now, dreaming dreams. But then he goes on and he talks about the last days, these wonders in heaven, signs on the earth, blood, fire, billows of smoke, where the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. And we see this taking place also in the book of Revelation. Speaking of the last days is when the Son of Man will come again. We're talking about the the return of the Lord. Uh, This is definitely something that is still future where we're still looking to this time when these other things will take place, where there will be this darkness, the moon turning to blood. I remember one time I was driving home and looked up and the moon was just red. You guys ever seen that where the moon just looks red? And I thought, that's weird. I read about that in Acts and I'm just like, ooh, you know, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? But it's interesting because now with smog and pollution, the moon can appear red. I don't know if that ever happened before, but now that there's a lot of pollution, it's not hard for that to be imagined, where the moon just appears blood red. Kind of a trippy thing. Well, in the last days, well, hey, you know, I don't know how much more smoggy it can get, but I, I think the time is right, and these things are happening. And he says, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, this is a quote from Joel chapter 2 as he goes and expounds these things, and he says, this is what's happening. The prophecies of Joel are being fulfilled. And he goes on in verse 22, and he says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Reminds me of Jesus. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you, by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. He goes on and he tells them what happened with Jesus coming there, doing these signs. He was accredited by God to do these miracles. They know about it. Verse 23, it says, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose for foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by the nailing him to the cross. He he tells them a couple of things here. First, he tells them that God had a plan, that this was all God's plan, God's doing, but then he tells them they're responsible. 
God had planned this beforehand. But then he says, you, with the help of wicked men, put, to death, put him to death, nailing him to the cross. It's amazing how we always try and battle, well, what, what's that balance between God's you know, foreknowledge and predestination and my free will? It doesn't matter. Even in the midst of God's working and God's ordaining, man is still responsible. God was at work doing something. God ordained this, but you're responsible for what you did. And I love how he puts these together because he doesn't try and, you know, well, I'm going to try and analyze this. He just says, God is at work and you're responsible. Well, wait a second. If it's God at work, why am I responsible? I don't know, but you are. It's one of those things where if God was small enough for me to figure out, then he wouldn't be big enough for me to worship. God is at work in ways that are beyond our ability to understand. His ways are above our ways. His thoughts above our thoughts, says the Lord in Isaiah 53. How, how do we understand these things? Might be 54. How do we know these things? How can we grasp it? Well, here's what you need to know. You did this. You're responsible for what you did. And that's important because... A lot of times we don't want responsibility. Have you ever worked with people like that? Hey, what's this mess here? Who's going to clean this up? Hey, it's not my job. Well, what is your job? Well, here's my job. It's just to do this, this. Well, who's going to clean this up? I don't know. I don't know who's responsible. If you have kids, it's the same thing. Who left these dishes? If you have more than one kid, you'll never know. You have four kids, you'll never know who did it. Who did it? It wasn't me. It was him. It was her. It was him. And all the fingers point, and it's like, you, you'll never know. You have to have a hidden camera <laughs> to verify those things. Because you, you, you'll never know. Well, who's, it? who's responsible? Someone's responsible. And we don't like to claim that responsibility. But right here, Peter just nails them. He says, you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death, nailing him on the cross. You did it. Now, we all take some of the blame for Christ's death because it was the sin of man that took him to the cross. Jesus said, no one takes my life, I lay it down and I take it back again. And so, it's important that we understand that you put him to death. It, it points to us, too. I wasn't alive back then. I, I don't know what you're talking about. That's those people. They did it. It was the Jews of that time, the Italians of that time. They did it. You know, that, those are the ones who are responsible. No, no, you did it. You sinned. You did it. Because he died for you. He died for me. And if we're not willing to take responsibility then we will not be able to own the benefits that come from that death. That's the whole idea of repenting as he's going to go on and talks about. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. It was impossible. The wages of sin are what? Death. Why couldn't death hold Jesus? 
because he never sinned. It was impossible for death to hold him. He took the sin upon him, but he never sinned. The wages of sin are death. Death couldn't hold Jesus because he did not sin. That's why he was able to conquer death. And David said about him, and this is important because remember, he is addressing a lot of the Jewish people, devout Jews, those who were there because religiously they come, they partake of the, the festivals, the feasts, the Passover. They are following the traditions that have been handed down to them by Moses and by their traditions. And he says, David said, so they know who David is. Oh, we know King David. I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave. Now he's speaking of Jesus. David said this, but David's not talking of himself. He's talking of Jesus. Nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, he goes on in verse 29, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, not just a king, and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one on of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life. And we all witnesses of that fact, exalted to the right hand of God, he, Jesus, has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at the right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus who you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, I bet, and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? When we read this, what Peter is saying, it has so much flavor of what Jesus would say to the Pharisees when they would question him. How is it that David calls his son Lord? When he said, sit at my right hand. How could he call his son Lord? How could he be Lord of him? Well, he's talking about someone else. And that's exactly what Peter is doing here. He's saying, David is not speaking of himself because he's died. He, we can go see the tomb. We know where he's buried. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. Who you crucified but God raised from the dead. That's who he's talking about. And he said to the Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And as he tells them these things, and he tells them once again, God has made this Jesus, has risen him, made him alive who you crucified. He is Lord and Christ. The scriptures talked about this. David talked about this. As a prophet, he pro 
prophesied about Jesus being put to death and rising again from the dead. He is the Messiah and you crucified him. Wow. Use their scriptures to make clear what they were responsible for and who Jesus was. They had been waiting for the Messiah. This is what they were all about. And now to find out that you put him to death. You were among the crowd yelling, crucify him, crucify him. You put him to death. You allowed him to go to the cross. The one who you've been waiting for all these years. And they were cut to their heart. And I love their question, brothers, what shall we do? Now turn back with me to John chapter, or Luke chapter 3. Because this same question is asked John the Baptist. Luke chapter 3, starting at verse 10. As John is preaching, it says, What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, The man who has two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, What should we do? Don't collect any more than you require, he told them. And some of the soldiers asked, What should we do? He replied, Don't extort money. And don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. And so when this question was asked, John the Baptist, he said, do, do, do. This is what you need to do. This is what you're supposed to do. This is what you need to do. Now they're asking Peter, what do we need to do? And what's Peter's response? In verse 38, he replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are afar off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. What do we need to do? He doesn't give them a list. Do this, do this, do this. He says, repent, be baptized. That means identify with Jesus. Remember in John chapter 6, verse 29, Jesus said, This is the will of God. Believe on him who he has sent. You want to do the will of God? Believe on him who he has sent. That's what we do now. We believe on him. Repent means change your direction. Be baptized is again identifying with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you do that, the promise of the Holy Spirit is yours. The same promise that indwelt them in John chapter 20, the same promise that filled him here in Acts chapter 2 is for you and for your children and for your children's children. This is the promise for you now and until he comes again. The possibility to have your sins forgiven is yours. Wow. What do I need to do? You need to change your mind, repent. 
identify with the person of Jesus, be baptized. And then you can receive forgiveness for your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What an incredible promise. And verse 40, it says, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them. What a great ministry to warn and to plead. You see, it's one thing to just come down on people. To just tell them they're going to hell. If you keep living that way, you're going to hell. You better knock that. You better stop that. But when you hear the word pleaded with them, what comes to mind? Don't you get a different heart? I'm not just warning you. I'm pleading with you. Pleading is for your sake. Because so many times warning or this kind of preaching can be almost for our sake. It makes me feel good to tell people they're not doing good. I get kicks out of that. I don't know. Just this pounding people. Yeah, you better stop it. You're not, yeah, you're not good enough. You're not, you better do this. But pleading is like, oh, please, don't live this way any longer. There's a difference. There's a huge difference. And we see that once again in the heart of Jesus being portrayed here in Peter. And you know what I love about the book of Acts is I get to see Jesus in his disciples. I get to see Jesus in these people who he spent time with for all these years. And what excites me about that is because that means people can see Jesus in me if I will be like them, if I will be filled with the Spirit, if I will repent and, and be baptized and be empowered by the Spirit. Maybe they can see Jesus in you and in me as well. And that's what we want, isn't it? And to plead with them, to warn and to plead. You need to stop living that way. You really do. I'm pleading with you. Stop. I'm pleading with you. Not just hammering you, I'm pleading with you. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. What generation? This corrupt generation. You know, every generation could take this verse and apply it to itself. There's not one generation that is not corrupt. I always hear this, I always hear, oh, the times, it's getting worse than it's ever been. No, it's always been bad. It was real corrupt back then. Oh, the government is really bad now. I mean, we've got, you know, abortion is legal and, and we've got, you know, pornography and drinking and the partying with kids. It's, it's never been this bad. No, it, it was this bad. Yeah, it's bad. I'm not saying it ain't bad. But it was as bad. They had government where the emperor thought he was God. That's pretty bad. And they didn't have... You know, they didn't ID you to if you wanted to drink something. There was no, you know, go to the liquor store, let me see your ID. No one had ID. People could make alcohol, anyone could drink. There was all kinds of perversion going on. Corinth, they had a whole religion that was prostitutes, and they would go throughout the streets, and that was what they did for worship. There was no illegal prostitution. It was rampant. Oh, it's a corrupt generation. This Yeah, every generation is corrupt. 
every generation. But even in every corrupt generation, there is the work of God in His people standing up and being a light on a hill. Saying, no, there is a better way. There is another way. Those who accepted His message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to the number that day. Man, 3,000. Bam. And we read that and we're like, oh, praise God, that's wonderful. And it is. It's incredible. But man, what do you do next week? Where do you meet? Who's doing the music? Who's doing the kids? Who's got you know the nursery duty? Because all of a sudden, we got a church of 3,000 people. We don't have a building. We don't have a place to meet. We don't have a PA system. Man, talk about a mess. I'm serious. You talk about a mess. And it's funny because we think of, you know, everything's so organized. You know, we've got our chairs. I mean, today we had a little problem. I had to jump the fence to go find the people to, you know, get them to unlock the gate here just earlier. And it's like, oh, no, you know, we start panicking. But I'm telling you, sometimes church is just a mess. You get a bunch of people together and you're going to have problems. And we're going to see that that happens throughout the book. There's problems. You know what? That's okay. It doesn't have to be perfect and organized and it's got to start right on time and this has got to happen, this has got to happen and we start structuring things. Hey, you know what? I, I bet they were freaked out. I bet they were rejoicing and going, oh my gosh, what is happening? And I imagine the, you know, the phone calls that Peter got that day. What do I do, you know, with my son? What do I do? You know, my husband, he's, you know, what do I... Oh, man, the counseling that was... Oh, I can't... I don't, anyway, go on. Verse 42, they devoted... Well, what do you do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles... All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. These verses are so full and just rich. Because as they continued and devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which was the scriptures as we saw, to fellowship, getting together, to breaking bread, and to prayer, they were filled with awe. God worked among them. They had everything in common. Now, what we need to remember that we alluded to at the beginning, you had people from all over Rome, all these devout Jews who were sticking around. Imagine if you were going to go, say, to, uh, let's pick somewhere nice, Newport Beach, and there was something going on there, and all of a sudden it was like the work of God is taking place there in a powerful way, and you know you can't drive back and forth because there were no cars, and so you're in Newport Beach, and the Spirit of God is working, and you're wanting to stick around because 
what hap- what's happening here is incredible. Well, where are you going to eat? Where are you going to sleep? What are you going to do? Well, they all shared together the things that they had in common. That's the context of what's happening. It's not communism, okay? It's not this communal, communal living all of a sudden, you know, well, everyone's just going to give to everyone, and that's how we're going to live. I mean, that sounds really nice, but that's not what's taking place here, okay? Just so you know. What's taking place here is there is a lot of people that are sticking around and they went out of their way to help them out. And they gave of themselves and they met in the temple, kind of like we're meeting here, and they met in homes where they just gathered together and they continued in this. And what was the result of that? As they were continuing just in the apostles' doctrine and breaking bread and fellowship and in prayer, as they were just loving each other and showing the love of Christ to one another, praising God, enjoying the favor of all people. What a testimony. When they were doing these things, people looked at them and said, wow, that's a great thing. Enjoying the favor of all people means those who are outside of them and that belief also. That's really important. Do we enjoy the favor of all people, or do people think that we're stuck up? Do people think that we're snotty? I've shared with you guys before how a lot of people don't like when churches come to their restaurants because they don't tip well and they complain. They're not enjoying the favor of all people. They're complaining. They're being nitpicky. Well, my coffee's cold, and this is that, and they're wanting to be catered to. Well, these people were enjoying the favor because all they were doing was loving and giving. And when you do that, you can enjoy the favor of all people. And the result of that is the Lord added to the church, to their number daily, those who were being saved. They didn't have a program. They were just doing what God had called them to do. And God blessed it. And the church grew. Why? Because they were doing what they were supposed to be doing. They were gathering together, fellowshipping. They were in continuing steadfast in the apostles' doctrine, in the study of God's word, in the studies of what Jesus had taught. They were praying, breaking bread, loving each other, caring for one another, and God was magnified. And people said, wow, that's cool. And God added to the church. We don't need to do other things to get people to be a part of what God is doing. We just need to do what God is calling us to do as his church. If we would be who Christ wants us to be, then we would enjoy the favor of men and he would add to the church. Because people are dying for something that is real, that is substantial, that is love, without strings attached. People are dying for that. We have it. If we would exemplify it, then God would use us to those who are around us. And we need to see that. With the idea of praying, and I'm going to close in this, we need to pray. We need to pray for, well, you guys can fill the blanks in for your own home, your own family, your own life. We need to pray for our community. We need to pray for the work God is doing here with us. There's a lot of things that we need to pray for, how God wants to use our lives to minister to other people. And so every Thursday, because we won't be here on Wednesdays anymore, 
every Thursday we are going to get together at 6.30 and pray. Now, this is just going to be a time where we come together. We might have some times where we're going to hand out things and we'll pray a little bit structured, but it's going to be a time where we're going to pray. And it's okay if the kids walk in, and it's okay if we're making coffee, and it's okay if we're setting up chairs. We're not going to close the doors. We're praying. No, we pray. That's what we do. You guys have kids? Anytime you want to pray, it, did it get quieter? No. It got louder, and the phone rang, and their friends came over, and the smoke alarm went off, and it's not sure what that was about. I mean, literally, that happens. Like, why would the smoke battery go dead right now? You know, we let's pray, okay? We finally get the family together, and it's like wrestling, you know. Shh, shut up, put that down, stop that, turn the TV off, get it, okay? We're gonna pray now, pray. Beep, 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 and it's like, ah, forget it, you know, and you just run out there, tearing your hair out, running down the street. Or is that just me? Uh, you know what? Doesn't matter. We're gonna pray anyway. It didn't stop them. I mean, you, you don't have all these people together and it'd be quiet. You just pray. And so we need to make prayer a routine in our lives and in our group here in our community. And so every Thursday at 6.30, you guys are invited to pray. We're going to pray. And wouldn't it be great if we just enjoyed the favor of those around us and saw God add to the work that he wants to do among us? Let's pray. Father, it would be so exciting as we read these things to be there and, and to be a part of what took place on that day when your church exploded. But Lord, there's no reason you can't do that again today. But there is our responsibility to do the right thing, Lord. To be committed to your teachings, to enjoy one another's fellowship, to truly love and care for one another, to break bread, and to devote ourselves in prayer. Lord, if we would do these things, you would be faithful to do what you do. God, you are exploding your church all over this world and nations that are restricted because of communist governments or, or poverty or militant governments that are actually fighting against the knowledge of you. There is revival taking place in all these areas of the world because your followers are doing just the things we read about. Well, Lord, we can do those things too. And, and my desire is that we would, Lord, that I would that there would be a hunger and a thirst, that there would be a cutting of my own heart, Lord, that what do I need to do that I would desire to surrender my will to yours, that I would change the way I think, Father, that I would be identified with Jesus, and that you would be glorified in my life and in the lives of those who are around us. Thank you, God, for your word. Pray you would enrich our lives as we remember these things that we read about today, that they would just spark within us, Lord, the hunger for you and the desire to see you work. We thank you, Lord, for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.